Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Talking Biotech podcast number 51. And today, again, we're going to try a little different format, something that's a little different, and really, we have no guest. Um, We'll talk about that later. But over the last week, I've received about a dozen tweets, actually more than that, um, maybe about two dozen tweets, Facebook posts, emails, asking me about glyphosate in vaccines. And you might remember, we talked about glyphosate being detected in breast milk and in other compounds like wine and beer back in episode number 30, where I talked to Dr. Shelley McGuire and Dr. Thomas Calhoun. Now, both of them are experts in analytical chemistry, and both of them gave some good assurances about what the people who were claiming to make detections were really detecting. But still, the questions are out there, and people are curious as to what does this really mean and how do I talk to other people about it? And that's where I thought today's podcast could be very helpful. Now, how do I feel about this? Well, I think there's something keenly unethical about putting poorly obtained information on the internet and making claims that scare people without peer review. And that's exactly what they're doing. Once again, the same folks that brought us uh, other claims of herbicides in different places are doing it again, this time with injectables into children. A wonderful attempt to scare people away from vaccination as well as the use of genetically engineered crops that rely on these compounds. I just find this music distracting. This kind of puts me in the mind of Barry White. You want her beside you, I want her beside me. <laughs> Alright, herbicide in a song. Alright, here we go. There's a really important reason I wanted to do this today. And I don't want that Samsung and Senef and others to go to predatory publishers like they usually do and find a way to get this kind of thing published that even though scientists don't take it seriously, the public does. And I want everyone to understand why these stories are, well, bullshit. You know, I hate to use PG-13 language on the podcast, but this is really irritating and really sad. These are people not telling the truth. They're scaring others, and, and mostly, they're scaring moms that just want information about their food and about vaccinating their kids. And, and there's a special place for hell for these folks. And I find what they're doing deplorable subversions of science. And the only way to make it go away is to talk to you. And if all of us are out there discussing what is the real science, how how do we help slow the spread of this bad information? And part of this is the fact that they are probably trying to find a place to publish this. And it's why it's more important for us to put good information on the internet not only to help those who have questions, but also to provide a easy, accessible, and easy and accessible 
means to inform people who may be eventually looking for information to review the manuscript. Let's help them understand why this assay is not being used correctly to give the conclusions that these folks are making. So what is glyphosate? And we'll talk about this in a few weeks. I have a guest lined up that'll be fantastic, so I won't go there today. But I'll give you some basic ideas. It's the active ingredient in an herbicide. Uh, it's a, typically in a commercial preparation was known as Roundup, still is. But glyphosate is manufactured by many, many companies. It's uh, off patent. Uh, if you want to buy it for your farm, you buy it from uh, uh, many different manufacturers right now. It works by inhibiting an enzyme called 5-enolpyruvyl-shikimate-3-phosphate synthase, or EPSPS for short. This is an enzyme that is necessary to make amino acids, especially well, the aromatic amino acids. Plants have this pathway, some bacteria use the same pathway, but it's not found in animals, which is why this herbicide is so highly prized. It's, it doesn't have toxicity at any significant effect in animals. And hundreds of studies have shown this. The problem is, is that this is the herbicide that works in tandem with Roundup Ready crops. So those who want to vilify the technology feel as though they need to vilify the compound. So when they couldn't demonstrate that the transgenic or GMO crops were dangerous for so many years now, 20 years, they haven't been able to show any evidence there that those are dangerous, so they go to the herbicide. And the idea is that if you can convince moms that the herbicide is dangerous and if it's in all their food and poisoning their children, then they will demand those crops stop being used. So one of the major complicit folks in driving this discussion is known as Zen Honeycutt. And Zen you might recognize because Zen has um, uh, quite visibly uh, gone after me on the internet. Um, but worse, she posted fake data years ago on the Moms Across America website. It was fake data that said that corn, especially the, well, the transgenic or GMO corn, contained high amounts of, guess what, glyphosate. And high amounts of, guess what, formaldehyde. Formaldehyde and glyphosate, the two chemicals that you can use to scare people. Of course, the same corn had 0% uh, carbon, which I don't know how that works. And it was really clear to anyone who knew anything about the samples they were claiming to make that they were really just, it was a soil test matrix that was filled in with false numbers by someone who knew very little about biology. It was amazingly fake, yet they stood behind it. And when I corrected it on her website, I was banned from the website and uh, then was gone after for weeks, months, maybe even a year, about how I was just a shill for Monsanto trying to protect my financial interests uh, because I pointed out that their table was fake and meant to scare people. Later on, the same group would claim that there was glyphosate detected in breast milk, which prompted a lot of alarm. A correct and proper study was done by Dr. Shelley McGuire, and this is what I referred to in episode 30 of the Talking Biotech podcast. She did the test correctly and showed that it was not detectable. So here we have two examples of the same Moms Across America group 
promoting false information in an attempt to scare people about their food. Since then, they've talked about how glyphosate's showing up in everywhere from wine to beer to uh, breast milk to now honey, and now most recently in vaccines. So let's listen to Zen a little bit and her story about how angry she is about these findings. Hi everybody, this is Zen Honeycutt from Moms Across America, and I'm a little bit pissed off, I have to say. I'm outside of the post and parcel place where I just mailed a whole bunch of letters to the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the California Department of Health, and Senator Boxer. And it costs $200 to mail them so that we get signed receipts saying that they did in fact receive this information. And But the information is, as many of you know now, is that we have found glyphosate, which is the one of the chemical ingredients of Roundup in vaccines. And these childhood vaccines, every single one of the five vaccines that we sent out uh, came back positive, and the MMR vaccine came back 25 times higher. And subsequent independent studies, or, or sorry, tests were done by an independent scientist, and his results were, were either 25 to 34 times higher. And this is absolutely unacceptable that a weed killer would be in our vaccines at any level at all. I know this sounds like satire. I know this sounds absolutely crazy. It does sound like crazy satire. But Zen, what's the deal? Now, here's a couple revealing phrases that she said there. She said, we got these tested. We went and did this. We had these results. And it tells us that her organization, Moms Across America, which has a reputation of publishing false information, is just at it again. Here is a way we can scare people about chemistry. And we can use the specter of herbicides and pesticides to make people fear the injections they need to withstand childhood disease. She also says that they're 25 times higher than 34 times higher compared to what? And uh, kind of leaves out some critical details there. Her, uh, her rather rambling rant here goes on quite a bit, and you can find it on the Moms Across America Facebook page. The thing that gives me a little bit of hope here is that you see the merging of two crank causes. You see people who are um, unfairly critical of genetic engineering combining forces with people who are against vaccination. And just like how you're kind of willing to give a UFO nut and a Bigfoot nut, you know, a little bit of a pass, uh, when you find people who are saying that big feet come from alien saucers, then you really kind of... <laughs> it, it really gives you significant pause. <laughs> <laughs> it just is uh, how that works. Now, when you look at the um, information on Moms Across America, Honeycutt shows uh, the others who are complicit in this particular effort. And they include Dr. Don Huber. And Dr. Huber, as many of you know, is a retired uh, professor who had a uh, considerably uh, quite credible career for a long time, um, who now tells people about a, uh, a top-secret, a dangerous pathogen that lives in GMO crops that infects people and gives them every disease known to mankind 
uh, in including um, arthritis, ADHD, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity. Um, this is important because we'll talk about this later. And uh, he talks about this this uh, organism that uh, c- can be cultured, and it has all these problems. Yet it has no DNA. Has no DNA, and uh, he doesn't like me very much. Um, the other people involved are Howard Vlieger, V-L-I-G-E-R, who was on the pig stomach study, which was highly suspect, and also was uh, originally the source of the fake data in the stunning corn comparison. So how did they get the data they claimed to receive? And they did this using a commercially available kit sold by a company called Abraxis. So if you go on the internet and look up A-B-R-A-X-I-S, you can find the kit for Abraxis. And Abraxis makes this kit for detection of glyphosate in water. Why would you want to detect glyphosate in water? Well, it's really important because when you're testing streams or around fields, it's important to understand how uh, the agricultural inputs we use end up with environmental fates. And if glyphosate is showing up in water, it's been shown very much to affect water microbial ecosystems as well as even have some sorts of developmental effects on fish. And I think those studies are pretty credible and and, and worthy of concern. So it's very important to understand when these herbicides or any of our agricultural chemicals, including those used in organic agriculture, show up in water systems. So how are people using this kit to get the results? Basically, it's kind of like uh, playing the Powerball game where you have to pick, what, five or six different numbers and get them all in order in order to win the game. But what they're detecting is one number that's kind of one or two numbers away from the actual number and claiming they're the winners. In other words, what it lo- appears to be happening is they're detecting noise of the assay from an improperly executed assay. And this is what's really important for you to understand to be conversant about this issue. Now for about the next 10 minutes, I'm going to ramble on about the assay they used and I really want you to try to understand it. If you need more help, go online onto YouTube and look up ELISA Competitive Assay. And ELISA spelled E-L-I-S-A. It stands for Enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. ELISA is a way that we can measure a small amount of something in solution, usually a protein. So when we're doing a test for HIV, one of the first tests they'll do is ELISA. The ELISA kit can be used to detect the coat proteins of the virus and do so with great sensitivity. That's why it's such a useful assay. Now this particular assay also is highly specific and also highly sensitive. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the Abraxas kit. I think the company makes an outstanding product that appears to do exactly what they say it should do, at least according to the information that comes along with the kit. They've done all the standardization and they've done all the cross-reactivity with other similar ag compounds, things like glufosinate or glycine. So how does this assay work? It's done in something called an ELISA plate, at least in most formats. What this looks like is is a 
plastic petri dish kind of the size of a postcard but instead of just being one big well one big plate for media to go in it's 96 little wells usually eight in one dimension 12 in the other so you have this plate the size of a postcard plastic dish with 96 little wells each one holds about I don't know maybe 20 drops of liquid now the way that it works is that you buy this plate that comes from the company the bottom edge of the plate is coated with antibodies and antibodies are proteins that are directed against certain compounds so just like when you get the flu virus and you develop antibodies to combat it in this kit you have antibodies that have been raised specifically against glyphosate now we don't need to go into the details of how they do that but they use glyphosate to increase antibodies that now you have these antibodies that can specifically detect glyphosate those are fixed in the bottom of each one of those wells these tiny tiny antibodies are there like little targets waiting to bind the molecule that they seek to detect but this is where it gets interesting it isn't a direct test where you put it in and see what binds you do this as a competitive test so here's the trick you create a mixture between the sample and the version of the compound that comes with the kit and that one is linked to an enzyme that gives you a detectable product so let me go backwards on that You're, you have an antibody bound to the plate that's there to detect glyphosate now the kit gives you glyphosate attached to an enzyme so a protein that's capable of some catalysis that does a reaction that allows you to see that it's there if you put in just that react just that reagent the glyphosate attached to the enzyme the well will turn a dark color of blue so how does this work to detect glyphosate if you're putting glyphosate attached to an enzyme in that same reaction what you do is you mix your sample with a known amount of the glyphosate attached to the enzyme and what will happen is that the glyphosate in the sample will compete for the target with the enzyme linked form the more glyphosate in your sample the less likely there will be binding of the enzyme linked form so you'll get less signal when there's more glyphosate think of it this way you have a dump truck that's filled with footballs basketballs and soccer balls you don't know how many footballs are in the mixture and you want to know so one way you could do this would be to dump the uh, contents of the dump truck onto a tennis court that's filled with little cone-shaped uh, you know receptacles that basically fit the end of a um, end of a football think of it like a big um, like an egg carton or like there's lots of those little uh, divots where that football can land basketballs and soccer balls they'll go in and bounce off but the football sticks now the egg carton is the antibody on the bottom of the plate the football is glyphosate the uh, soccer balls and uh, basketballs are other noise inside that preparation and it allows you to specifically detect the football from a soccer ball or a basketball now to think of this as a competitive ELISA 
you have that dump truck full of different balls. Footballs, basketballs, and soccer balls. But in order to quantify how many there are there, how many footballs are there, you, you need to add a known quantity of footballs that say have a LED on them. Now when you dump the footballs that are naturally there with the ones you've installed with the LED, there'll be a competition for those cone-shaped receptacles on that tennis court. They all look the same to the receptacles. Now when you land them, all of them on that tennis court and you you know, kick away the ones that aren't bound so the, football, or the uh, basketballs and soccer balls go away, all that's left are footballs. Some of them with LEDs, some of them without. And I realize this may not be completely clear, but let's keep going with this analogy. So if there are no footballs in that dump truck, and it's just soccer and basketballs, then when you add your LED footballs to that mixture, only LED-containing footballs will end up on the target. So from the large amount of lit targets that you would see, you would surmise that there's very few footballs, if any, in that dump truck. Now let's think of it the other way. What if you add your LED-containing footballs to that dump truck and mix it, and there's lots of footballs in there, and you dump that onto the egg carton tennis court? Now the, there's going to be a competition between the lit ones and the unlit ones for those spaces. And if there's lots of footballs, you'll see a very dim signal from the LED footballs. This is how a competitive LISA works. You have something with a label that you can detect competing for the same space as the molecule you wish to detect. Less signal means more of the actual molecule you wish to detect. But this is the idea of the competitive ELISA. A decreased signal means positive detection. And again, by another analogy, it's like listening to two songs playing at the same time, and the quieter song is the one that's actually louder. <laughs> so you can see why there's confusion in the interpretation of this assay. It's wonderful if you have good controls and if you do it right. It's pretty good. Not the best, but it's pretty good. But when you use it wrong and claim that something's there that's really not, you can see why that's a problem. So, in other words, when you're trying to separate a positive signal from a slightly less positive signal, there's many factors that come to play. And these assays are notoriously variable and deeply dependent upon the solution that the original reagent is in. So, in other words, the ELISA is made to work with a certain matrix. In an analytical chemistry, we talk about the matrix. It's the, the stuff that your target is in. And whether that's a human serum, or whether that's water, or whether that's vaccine fluid, is really important. And here's why. Let's talk about the detection. And let's not talk about footballs. Let's talk about the actual assay. In the assay, there's glyphosate bound to an enzyme that can be used to create a color reaction that causes that color to form. So if it's all, if there's no glyphosate present in your sample, the reaction proceeds where the, the glyphosate bound to the enzyme that comes with the kit, that binds 100% and you get the darkest signal. The kit is very reliable. 
and I think is probably pretty good for giving you a rough quantitation of the amount of glyphosate in the matrix it was designed to test, in this case, water. But what happens when you mix it with wine or honey, breast milk or a vaccine? Now these are really complicated matrices. There's many other chemicals that are there, especially in something like wine or breast milk. So a strong chemical reaction is required to visualize that 100% reaction. It usually is hydrogen peroxide being converted to another compound. It causes a colorimetric reaction. So what if the something in your wine or breast milk or honey or vaccine interacts with the hydrogen peroxide? That would cause a diminished signal and a false positive. In other words, vaccines, you know, they, they contain uh, buffers, stabilizers, other chemicals that really are meant to dissuade the oxidation of the compound and, and other, chemical con other chemical conversions that happen spontaneously. So something like hydrogen peroxide, you would expect it to be at least partially neutralized or maybe even completely unavailable upon reaction. On an ELISA plate, those lanes would be less colored and be interpreted as a positive reaction. So in other words, there's no glyphosate even present. It's just that the constituents of the matrix, this stuff in wine, breast milk, honey, whatever, is interacting with the hydrogen peroxide, the enzyme, um, or um, other aspects of the detection that give you the illusion of competition when really what you're seeing is less detection. I know this is confusing. It's a very difficult thing to describe without a whiteboard. But you get the idea that there's an enzymatic reaction that's fixed in place that if the chemical that you're trying to detect is present will move that reaction out of that space. Less reaction means more chemical present. So there's multiple ways to retard the progress of that reaction that gives you the that gives you the positive signal. And one of those ways, well, who knows? Ethanol, any of the other things that are in wine could be messing with that reaction, making it slightly less positive, which would be interpreted by someone who wants to interpret it that way as a positive. So how do you get around that possibility of a uh, of of a a false positive. Well, you have to use good controls. And to use a good control would mean that you would need a, let's say vaccines, you would need the vaccine without glyphosate. So you'd have to go into that, you have to go reconstitute what is in a vaccine from pure reagents and then incubate them with the ELISA kit and show that they do not diminish the signal. Then you would take the actual vaccine, put that in and show that it does diminish the signal. If the case was wine, you would have wine without glyphosate that you knew was not with glyphosate and use that as a negative control. And if that negative control uh, showed you no change in the color, then the one that you would test that you thought was positive would cause a decrease. Now here's what's interesting. The claims that wine contains glyphosate said that wine uh, from organic farms, where glyphosate is not allowed, tested positive for glyphosate. <laughs> so when your negative control is testing positive, 
it tells you that there's something wrong with the assay. Something is cross-reacting with the constituents of the enzyme detection method that are interfering with the assay. And it's being interpreted by these folks as being a positive. The other issue is this thing called LOQ, or limit of quantitation. And what this is, is it's, it's the way in which every single matrix that's used has to be specifically tested in a dilution for where it has an effect on the assay. And there's no evidence that any of these important preliminary tests were performed with glyphosate. So what do these data really mean? And so if you go back to the example of organic wine, these are coming from farms where they can't use glyphosate. And I certainly respect organic farmers that they aren't doing something that they're not supposed to do. I mean, it's their living depends upon the fidelity of their practices. So when a scientist tests organic wine and says, look, there's a signal, positive signal, they go, wow, we have a problem. There, there's glyphosate in organic wine. This shows you the contamination. Whereas a scientist like me, I'll look at it and say, wait, we got a problem here. This is a negative that's coming up positive. And so we really have to look carefully at these results. Maybe this assay method using this quick and dirty Abraxas kit is not the appropriate way to test it. However, if you're uh, any of these folks in the anti-GM movement, whether you're Zen Honeycutt or Anthony Samsel or um, Stephanie Seneff, bingo! There's contamination. Aha! Got it! And I should have mentioned, I did reach out to Zen Honeycutt on Twitter and other places and ask her if she'd like to participate in the dialogue today. And I did write an email to Anthony Samsel because I had his, his email address. And certainly he's willing to talk to everyone from Infowars to Art Bell to whoever will listen to the story. However, he's not willing to engage a scientist on a scientific discussion of the essay he used to make the claims that he's making. I also should mention that I reached out to the Monsanto company who agreed to be on the podcast, but then disagreed. And likely what happened is somebody somewhere in the company said, uh, you don't want to attach that podcast to that company because uh, they don't want people to say have the easy dismissal of, see, it's just Monsanto's uh, work or just, you know, whatever. And I think that's really unfortunate because they are the experts in detecting the compound. And if our job here is to get to the truth and get to the bottom line, we should be inviting every conceivable expert to discuss this topic. So that's why it's just me flying solo today. So if you go online and you check for the Abraxas kit, you can read all about it and read about its sensitivity and the claims that it makes. And the kit seems fine. The problem is the way it's used and the way that the examples are interpreted. And maybe going back to the football analogy, here's the deal with controls. If anything in those vaccines, whether it was, well, anything in the, in the reaction, whether it's vaccines, wine, whatever, messes with the hydrogen peroxide that's used as a, as a substrate for the enzyme reaction, even a little bit, you won't be able to accurately judge what no presence really means. You don't know what is nothing. What does zero mean? Thinking about it with the football analogy, if there were no footballs in the dump truck 
and all the LED footballs were bound to those egg carton detectors. But there were blankets that somebody threw over them. It would appear as though there were no LED footballs there, even though that's all that was there. So in other words, something else was masking the signal that told you nothing was there. (laughs) I know this is super confusing, but I think you get the idea. And if you study the concept of competitive ELISA, you see very quickly how it can be prone to errors. The company that makes it knows this, and they say right in their instructions that this is for the detection and quantitation of of glyphosate in water whether it's groundwater, surface water, well water, whatever. They say this right in their flyer. And um, even though they do say soil and crops and food, you have to do it with specific matrix validation guidelines. They say it right in the kit. That if you're going to use it with something other than water, you have to first validate that your method of extraction and that the method of detection has fidelity in the kit. The most recent claims and the rest of the old claims do not do that. So they break the rules. And on top of this, the experts who know how to detect this stuff have detect have done the experiments and they don't detect it. So whether you're talking about Shelley Maguire's peer-reviewed and published work saying that it's not there and she studied this in conjunction with experts who know how to detect glyphosate, um, even though the claims were made that there was 166 parts per billion, um, she never saw anything, and neither did a German study that came out about the same time. And the, the egg claim that there were glyphosate in eggs, um, there was no detection from an FDA study. So what if the results were actually true? And this is the other interesting angle on this, that even though I don't personally think that the data are correct, what if they were? And they're detecting parts per trillion, maybe low parts per billion of glyphosate in a vaccine. Well, if you take that one mil injection and you inject that into, a say, a one kilogram baby, which, well, 2.2 pounds, I guess, uh, it's got to be a little bigger. How big are babies? I don't know. They're probably like, uh, when you're getting shots, let's say 20 pounds. Size of a good fish, that would be a keeper. Let's say 22 pounds. Let's say 10 kilograms. That's uh, 10 liters of water, assuming bodies are kind of water and membranes all gooed together. Um, so, so 10 liters, 10,000 centimeters. So you're, you're taking that part per billion or a few parts per billion and diluting them into the bloodstream of something, um, what is that, 10,000 times, which takes it down below, well below parts per trillion. You're going into parts per quadrillion. So you're really diluting this out by injecting it into a 22-pound baby. (laughs) I know this sounds morbid, but the idea is is that glyphosate moves rapidly through the body. It's excreted in the urine in the stool that even if there was something there, it would be so far, hundreds of thousands of times, millions of times, maybe a billion times below physiological relevance. So even if what they were detecting was true, it would be, be below any threshold of relevance to human physiology billions of times. So how would you get glyphosate in a vaccine? I mean, people spray this on on weeds and young crops. How the heck would you get it into vaccines? And for that, we have to go to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, 
the person who will remind you over and over again that she's an MIT scientist and in her laboratory has demonstrated conclusive links between uh, the use of glyphosate and autism and that she's demonstrated the um, uh, conclusive links between diabetes, breast cancer, celiac disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, depression, um, you name it. And, and you should listen to her work on YouTube, um, the claims that she makes. Um, very, very strongly worded um, associations between glyphosate and disease. Um, and of course, just like Dr. Huber blames the same things on GMO crops, Senef blames it on the chemical. And my basic rule is, is that when uh, something causes everything, just like when something cures everything, it's probably not true. So how does she think it gets there in the first place? Well, yes, the vaccines, of course, they're getting many more vaccines today, and they're getting a lot of toxic ingredients in those vaccines. The aluminum and the mercury are both problematic, as well as the glutamate, and in my opinion, the glyphosate. So this is something that I haven't proven, but it's a theory that I have. It's quite reasonable that the MMR vaccine and the flu vaccine in particular could be could be contaminated with glyphosate. And if they are, that is extremely uh, dangerous situation because they already contain glutamate, and glutamate and glyphosate together will excite something called the NIMDA receptors in the brain and burn out neurons. So you, you will definitely get an inflammatory response in the brain if you provide those two chemicals simultaneously to especially a person who already has issues due to their prior exposure to glyphosate in their food and other chemicals in the environment. How convenient. So she makes the claim that there are all these toxic ingredients in vaccines. Oh, and, and uh, by the way, um, hello. Um, mercury has been removed from these childhood vaccines, and it wasn't a problem when it was there. That's been demonstrated. Uh, again, she just wants to build fear around vaccinations. Now brings up the specter of, wait a minute, what if there's glyphosate in vaccines? How convenient. I mean, this, uh, this was on the David Icke show um, that was recorded several, maybe about, I don't know, a couple months ago, and posted on YouTube. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Here's a person who stands to uh, association with MIT that the guy is is just like gushing over her accomplishments and her affiliation with this you know fine organization, uh, totally using her credibility of the organization to promote a really poor scientific idea. Uh, she calls it a theory, which she really means a hypothesis. I mean, this is how bad the fundamental science is in this particular case. But what about a mechanism? I mean, how would glyphosate possibly get into a vaccine? These are highly purified, highly regulated preparations. How would you get a vaccine full of glyphosate in the first place? I wonder if it would take a very unusual and circuitous route. So what I'm saying is that MMR is, and the flu vaccine are live viruses. They're grown on a gelatin. They provide gelatin as nutrient for the virus to grow. And gelatin is derived from the tendons of cows. And cows are fed massive amounts of GMO, Roundup-ready corn and soy crops as their food. So cows are definitely contaminated with glyphosate. It's been shown to gather, uh, to show up in all the tissues of the cows. And the tendons in particular are have a lot of... Um, a, a collagen, something, a protein called collagen, which is highly rich, enriched in glycine. 
And my re- most recent research suggests that glycine, glyphosate can substitute for glycine in proteins. So you can imagine there would be glyphosate instead of glycine in the protein molecule that's being, uh, that's the, what they use to prepare the gelatin that the vaccine is grown on. So I don't see a good reason why there wouldn't be glyphosate in the vaccine. I think that's something somebody should be testing. I think it's a shame that we have never tested vaccines, for example, to see if they contain glyphosate. (laughs) And so her buddy, uh, Anthony Samsel, Samsel, who uh, co-authors these kind of wacky reviews in uh, in a predatory journal, uh, he's already obviously been doing these tests or is has already has these well underway at this point and uh, oh wow someone needs to be doing this uh, setting the table for the results that they wish to find and what's really funny is she says oh well some of my research shows that glycine can substitute for glyphosate or glyphosate can substitute for glycine in proteins give me a break First of all, her research shows. I'd like to know what she's using for a translational extract, um, what kind of tests she's doing, what kind of proteins she's translating in the presence of glyphosate, and how she's quantifying glyphosate inside that protein. And let's go back to molecular biology 101. If you go back to translation, this idea of taking the information in RNA, feeding it through a ribosome to synthesize proteins, you know that, gly- that this process is highly specific that uh, something like glycine, which is a very simple amino acid, moves into the ribosome and is typically a part of many proteins. She's saying that glyphosate, which is glycine with a phosphorol group and some other decorations on there, can move into the spot of glycine. Now, think about this for a minute. Or actually, if you want to do something better, go look up a website on on the amino acids. You have glycine, which is a very simple amino acid, but alanine, which isn't much more complex. Very minor alteration, and you don't see glycine and alanine being misinterpreted into proteins. And this is because it's a highly regulated process. She's coming from left field again, saying that she's done research, which means that she's got on Google, and no evidence whatsoever, no scientific evidence that what she's saying is true. She then goes on to talk about how glyphosate could possibly get in there. So, obviously, the cows are contaminated because the cows ate something with residues. Of course, we know that the residues, again, move through the body and urine and stools and are there in parts per million on, on the initial crop, maybe. I mean, very low amounts. Then those move through the animal. She's saying, no, that's not true. They're in all the ligaments and the tendons and the, uh, in the parts of the cow that are used to create the gelatin that goes into the vaccine. All right, so let's think about this circuitous route. And, and the funny part is all of the, the claims that the, that the stuff is in tendons and everything else, um, guess what kit they use to determine that? So they're using a bad test to make a claim that there is something there. Uh, it, 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 it boggles the mind how people can take this seriously. But this is the route that they claim uh, is, is putting glyphosate in vaccines. So let's put a lid on this thing. There's something truly immoral about corrupting science to scare people away from medical treatments and away from food. It's really important for all of us to understand what these assays are, what are their limitations, and how they are being misused to 
misinform people. Now I neglected to mention something else, that the Abraxas kit says right in the instructions that it is a cursory test. It's there for a fast initial evaluation of water, and you do it because it's important to know if glyphosate is in water. It tells you right in the kit that you need to go to better methods, methods such as HPLC mass spec or other methods to truly identify if glyphosate is there. Now those assays are much more difficult, much more expensive. That's why people like Dr. Shelley McGuire and Dr. Thomas Calhoun from episode 30 are wizards in what they do. It's special technology that's required and not a kit that you can essentially buy over the counter to interpret any way you'd like to interpret them. So go online and read about glyphosate and vaccines. You can see the YouTube videos with Samsung, with Honeycut, many others. They're actually getting excited about sending letters to the NIH, to the CDC, to their representatives in Washington and in their state, making the claim that they have definitively identified glyphosate in vaccines. Think about this. People with zero scientific training polluting the public discussion about a really important topic. And this is why it bothers me so much. It bothers me as a scientist and as a human being because for me, even for me to make the most conservative claims in science, I have to endure the peer review process, a process that's extremely difficult to navigate. I have a 30-year career in the field, training in the techniques, I understand the limitations, I understand statistics. We have a standard that we have to uphold. But these folks, there's no standard. They hold up flawed assays and deeply distorted results as gospel, and use this misinformation to scare people away from technology that helps farmers, helps consumers, helps the environment, and can help the needy, and medical treatments that can curb childhood suffering. Now my hope is that they crossed the line here. I, I kind of think that's true. Uh, we don't hear about this on the news, we don't even read about it in the softer science magazines or science websites. It's confined to this weird sphere of websites and media that disregard science. They're discussed in between a debate about Obama's birth certificate and if 9-11 was an inside job. These are the same sites that reject chemotherapy, that say that statins will kill you, and support positions in medicine and science that have very little to do with actual medicine or science. But that's the place where this stuff belongs. It belongs in the realm of conspiracy. But why should we care then? What's the harm? Let them have fun. If this influences one mother not to vaccinate, or someone to make a food choice, someone who's in a marginal position with being able to afford food, to skew their choices to more expensive options, then yes, that should bother us, and that should compel us to take action. Now what's their goal? What are they getting out of this? Well, clearly they're using this as a ruse to frighten people as usual and gain more money for their corrupt causes. It only allows them to further amplify their bogus information. So what's our job? Learn the essay. Look at their claims. Write about it on your blog. Talk about it. Write about it in the comments section of the articles that you see online. Let's bury the BS with legitimate, non-confrontational science. Share your knowledge, and remember to do it with your values up front. That issues of public health and issues of public nutrition are very important to you, and that you condemn acts of fear mongers that hate technology 
more than they love people. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. My name is Kevin Fulta. Please write a review on iTunes if you could, please. I really would appreciate it. And send me suggestions for guests or topics that you'd like to see covered in the future. That's where this one came from. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.